0: Hello and welcome to Conversations About Arts, Humanities and Health, a podcast series all about meaningful dialogue and connections between humanities and medicine. We're back once again with the first episode of Season 3. To kick off our third season, we have the pleasure of hosting Sue Foster and Matt Jennings. What you're about to hear is a conversation in front of a live audience between Sue and Matt and the co-organisers of this project, Dr. Dieter de Klerk and Professor Ian Sabro. Dita and Ian will talk with Sue and Matt about their work with Health Action Training, a project that combines techniques from actor training and applied drama to help improve communication and resilience for nurses and other health and social care professionals. You can check out the episode description for more details about this. Without any further ado, over to Dita, Ian, Matt, and Sue. So, hi everyone.
1: Welcome to what we are now calling the third season of conversations about <laughs> arts, humanity and health. I felt like after new year we should name it a new season. Uh, but this is our 11th one actually that we're doing. And we're really excited that Matt and Sue that you could join us today to talk about your work with health action training. So yeah, I'm Dieter, I'm Dieter Clerk. I teach film and media at Kent. And you know, for those of us who haven't joined us before, each conversation, we have one or two guests, um, Ian and I. Matt and Sue, we're going to be talking about health action training, which combines techniques from active training and applied drama to help improve person-centered communication and resilience for nurses, but you know, broadly for health and social care professionals. Ian, I'll gladly hand over to you. Thank
2: you. And again, just really welcome to everybody, especially welcome to Matt Jennings and Sue Foster, our, our conversation uh, conversationalist speakers for today. You're truly welcome. Um, it's a real pleasure today to welcome uh, Sue Foster, who's a lecturer in palliative care at Ulster, uh, whose interests include ethics of care, communication, um, advanced therapies, practical working with people in end-of-life care. Uh, she'll tell us a bit more about herself in just a minute. And also Matt Jennings, actor, researcher, lecturer in drama, applied drama um, worker, um, student of the theories of acting, not an area that we've explored uh, until this meeting, which is how you take the experience of theatre, the theory of theatre and apply it to change our understanding of the world around us. So, it's a really interesting thing to look at the Practical implications of theatre theory and see how they can be applied to effect change um, and respecting the value of each tradition. Um, Sue, I'll let you just say a few words about yourself and what brought you here today, and then I'll hand over to Matt to follow on.
3: Okay, thank you. Thanks so much. Uh, really nice to be here, everyone, and thank you for the invite. As you already mentioned, I'm um, from a nursing background, been nursing now for probably 30 years plus. Freddie settings and different backgrounds, starting firmly rooted, I suppose, in the clinical setting before moving into education. I have my passion lies with palliative and life care. And it's funny because I was just thinking, when I was thinking about doing the webinar with you, it was almost just over 30 years ago that I had the opportunity to work in Caligat, um, House of the Dying Hospice. And I was quite proud and honoured to work alongside uh, the Missionary Sisters and Mother Teresa. And I suppose that was the first time for me that I actually, I was really inspired. It really showed how they embodied true compassion. The most important person in the room for them was that person. And really highlighted the whole communication and that person dying with dignity. And it has always stuck with me. And from that time on, I knew that that would be the area that I wanted to specialise in. Uh, it was just witnessing, I guess, application of personhood. It was just so, was so beautiful, actually. Coming on from that, as I say, 23 years ago was palliative and end life care I moved into before moving, the transition was right for me to move into education probably about 15 years ago now. And I suppose one of the most important things, and I have taken it with me throughout my career, was that communication, it's core, quality, person-centred care. If we don't have effective therapeutic communication, you know, what do we have? And we're all aware that as much as we try our best as nurses, as healthcare professionals, and we try our best, but we don't always get it right. And there is flaws in the communication and the impact that those flaws can have on patients, families, relatives. So although I have taught other things, most certainly advanced symptom management and ethics and so forth, communication, advanced communication skills is very close to my heart. I had the opportunity, which just came at a really nice time, to the concept of Health Access Training came along in 2019. So it's been a few years just for me. But it was this idea of teaching, it was really novel. It was a new approach to looking at teaching communication skills using. Uh, apply drama and techniques from actor training. It was great to have the opportunity to step into that. So it's a whole new approach to me. I think, obviously, over the years of teaching using role play and simulation and so forth, but this whole idea was new. The literature, some of the authors, you know, all the theories behind it were totally new to me, and hence it was a great opportunity to step in and become part of that.
2: Thank you so much. And, And Matt, then... An actor, a drama theorist, a changer of people's lives. Tell us about how you started in your journey and your relationship between the theory of medical humanities and the places that it's taken you when you've ended up working with Sue.
4: Um, well, thanks, Ian. Thanks, Dieter, for having us on this wonderful program and listening and attending a, to quite a few of them. And it's a very important conversation being had between the disciplines in terms of the changing people's lives um, one aspect of what we look at when we're doing the work with nurses and health professionals is how we are always already changing other people's lives, even in the smallest possible um, context. You know, a, a look, a gesture, a touch can change someone's life significantly, for the worse or for the better, in ways we don't understand. So, I guess in terms of the ideas behind acting, there are elements in actor training where you understand the significance of a gesture or a look that can help us to understand the significance of a gesture or a look or a moment or a conversation Uh, In real life, but just sort of to answer your question, I initially studied communication at University of Technology in Sydney, where I majored in um, dramatic production and and script writing. And then I trained as an actor in the early 90s at the University of Western Sydney, and subsequently had a sort of 10-year career as a writer, director, musician as well, and actor working in theatre and television and film in Australia. But I arrived in Northern Ireland um, from Australia. Initially in 1997 and kept coming back and then moved here in 2001 and particularly in Northern Ireland, my focus of work became applied drama or what was generally called at the time community drama where we were working with groups of people in in the real world, using drama as a way to improve communication, enhance self-esteem, build uh, relationships between communities and so on. Uh, Particularly because Northern Ireland was just coming into the early years of the peace process at that point, a lot of it was cross-community work uh, or other forms of uh, community and applied drama helping to serve conflict transformation and peace building. Uh, And I did my PhD thesis on um, community and applied drama and conflict transformation since the Good Friday Agreement of 1998 completed that in 2010, but also at the same time as I was doing that work in applied drama and conflict transformation, I was also working with people in the health sector, predominantly working with adults with learning disabilities well, and children, but, but regularly adults with learning disabilities, um, and occasionally working with nurses and doctors and social workers and so on, usually running a sort of a standard applied or community drama workshop or um, doing a bit of role play where I would play a patient or a family member or something. Now, some people who are listening who might not be from a drama background might not necessarily understand the difference when we say applied drama or after training techniques. So applied drama generally uh, has this tradition of educational drama where you might sort of go to a school and there might be theatre and education where you put on a show about an issue or the history of Florence Nightingale or something, or drama in education where you would do interactive process-based drama workshops, deepening the learning about a topic. So, for instance, if we take the topic of Florence Nightingale, theatre and education would be to tour schools with a show about Florence Nightingale. Drama and education would be to do interactive drama workshops where the students might play the role of nurses or soldiers, and they deepen their engagement with it. Some of the practitioners that we've introduced people like Sue to in that regard would be Dorothy Hethkett, who originally came from sort of County Durham, I think, up near Newcastle, who developed an approach to educational drama that was fully interactive, experiential, participant-led, learning through doing uh, and learning through dialogical pedagogy in the sense of talking and learning at the same time, uh, where the learner teaches and the teacher learns and you are know, doing and learning and thinking and talking all at the same time. And that relates to another area of applied drama, which would be social theatre, or community-based theatre, and very influential in that area would be the work of Augusto Boal, who developed a technique called Theatre of the Oppressed. And as you might be able to tell from the title, that was directly influenced by Paolo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed which is where I got that term, dialogical pedagogy, um, where people are learning and with each other and sharing their knowledge where the teacher learns and the learner teaches on the basis of their mutual social and political experiences in the context of things that they're working in. So with the usual applied drama, You might have games-based, play-based activities that help to deepen people's understandings of a topic by playing roles within it, such as Dorothy Hethcote. You might have Techniques drawn from Augusto Bawal, such as Forum Theatre, where you develop a play based on people's experiences of difficulty in their professional or social or political lives. So, say you're dealing with a, a group of nurses and they're having a lot of problems with communicating with, with the senior management, you could do a play about that. And in Forum Theatre, the audience can stop the action, put their hand up and say, stop, and they can make suggestions about what the characters could try to do to have an alternative outcome to the situation in the scene. And not only that, they are then cajoled by a person called a joker, who's like a facilitator, to come and join the action from the audience, uh, and hence they become what Augusto Boal calls a spectator. So they go from becoming a spectator to becoming an actor, and they're a spectactor, right? So that's one technique in the theatre of the oppressed, which would be conventional practice in applied drama. However, because I came from an actor training background when I first arrived in Northern Ireland, I taught what I knew, which was stuff that I'd learned at drama school about how to do acting as a professional actor, and then you know got some books on how to do drama-based games and how to do Auguste Boyle's Theatre of the Impressed. And it just struck me that wouldn't some of the acting technique help to deepen the outcomes of the games-based or the forum theatre-based approach? And was surprised to find when I was working on my PhD and then subsequently being a sort of a member of various research networks and presenting at conferences and so on, that not many people, in the UK anyway, who practiced applied drama came from an actor training background. And this was seen as something unusual. So, for instance, part of the core element of your training as an actor would be to learn basic principles of Stanislavski technique such as actions, objectives, and given circumstances. And we'll probably go into them in more detail later. However, when I would be working with people who were used to using Boal or Hefkut, they wouldn't really necessarily be that familiar with active actions, objectives, and given circumstances. Therefore, if they did, they would know of it as something to do with Stanislavski, who's not necessarily relevant. So, for instance, when I was working with nurses as a role player, when I was playing a family member or a patient, and nurses were getting very nervous and they were getting very sort of caught up in, oh, I've got to perform with a professional actor and people are watching. And they were more concerned about the performativity of the role play event than the value of learning something through through engaging it as if it was real. I thought these people could really do with a simple set of drama workshop warm-up activities that I would normally do on a weekly basis with adults with learning disabilities or children from Protestants and Catholic communities, schools or or, or aspiring professional actors. So this was sort of cooking around in my head for a while, and I've been using actor training techniques in my applied drama practice because, you know, that's what I knew. And then in 2014, 13 or 14, I did a workshop with nursing lecturers at Ulster University One of them, Padini, was very interested and he was a keen role player and he'd been using simulation as a core element of not only his basic training for nurses and and all nurses have to pass a role play element to demonstrate their their nursing skills and particularly their communication skills to register as nurses in the UK. So he was in charge of the module delivering that, but also he has sort of a extracurricular interest in disaster response training. He, he comes from a military background as well. So he, he would, he would be involved in groups like the International Red Cross and, and do international training of how to deal with war zones and, and natural disasters. So. He was very interested by what I showed them within that basic drama workshop of creative approaches to communication. And we started doing it as a core element of the preparation for the nursing students and for those final year role plays. Because like the research shows, most students were very nervous about it. Most students struggled to take it seriously. Most questioned the verisimilitude. You know, the catchphrases would be things like, oh, well, I would never do that in real life. And the question then is for the lecturers, um, well, how do we know? Because this is the only way in which we can examine it. Uh, So to make it more convincing and also less terrifying. And I have to say, it never ceases to amaze me how nurses and nursing students can find the concept of doing a one and a half hour drama workshop more terrifying than a 13-hour shift in an accident and emergency. We would sort of like, you know, give them an hour and a half worth of basic drama techniques through a workshop and then help them work, develop their role plays and give them some acting-based tips on how to improve those role plays. And the the results immediately were were amazing. We were given a teaching award by by nursing and drama students for our first year of collaboration. And since then, we kept going with that. But now we have started uh, as of, well, as Sue said, 2019 health action training as a project to deliver it for nurses, not only in the UK, but also internationally, who are post-reg nurses working in the field. And we've delivered five 35-hour courses and one set of train the trainer's courses. And the outcomes have been spectacular.
1: I think this is a fantastic introduction to, to your wonderful work. And I think it, it touches on some, a question I think I'd like to ask Sue. Like, Sue, how was it for you to come from your, your background? You explained how communication, you know, through your work in hospice has, has always been central to your practice. But, you know, mm-hmm. you, I imagine you weren't a trained actor and then all of a sudden you meet Matt. And so how did that transdisciplinary collaboration start? And yeah, was um, it a bumpy ride?
3: Oh, Absolutely. Back in 2019, I was leading on a communication uh, module as part of an MSC course at um, university with Pat and who Matt has already mentioned, alongside Martin Carr. So this is my first time coming across this totally. It was new, I had to do a lot of reading, apply drama, actor techniques. They're not words that I would use every day in my vocabulary as a nurse and an educator, nurse educator. I have to say, I found it totally intriguing. Had to try and get my head around how does this come together? As I say, role play, advanced communication skills, clinical practice are things that we would do all the time. But this whole idea of horror, as as we refer, as Matt has mentioned, where does Augusto Bial? And foreign theatre, where does that sit in communication skills training? And it's only now that you do it, that it's now that they're, they connect so well together. Do you know, as we all say, we can't do this on our own, most certainly not. But and an example I wanted to give there, just in relation to that is the participants. And um, we asked them a scenario around breaking bad news. Okay, we'll give that scenario the, the students or sorry, the participants, the learners will choose what scenario it's obviously applicable to their own background, their own setting. And working through that particular scenario of giving that bad news. In this particular case, young lady who um, had a young family and so forth, and that her news wasn't good, it was terminal, it wouldn't be too long. However, we did that in the Boal um Forum Theatre. And it was absolutely amazing because you kind of think, how, how can you do that? No, such a motive topic, also. And we've referred to this before working our way through, you know, one of the frameworks, the SPIKES framework, six stage framework of working our way through to break bad news. It's a guide for clinicians to use. But an actually, acronym. pardon?
4: I'm just saying it's an acronym if oh, anybody's yeah. wondering why we're using SPIKES for breaking bad news. It's, it's an acronym, it's not the use of actual SPIKES. <laughs>
3: No, well thank you, Matt. mean it's been out many, many years, it's known universally, but it's looking at, you know, setting up the actual meeting with the patient, the family, setting it up, assessing their procession, you know, up to uh, inviting them to come in, to have that discussion, to have that chat with you, you know, giving knowledge to them, addressing their emotions, putting up a strategy, you know, having a summary of that. So it's a very, it's a nice, clear framework to help you as a practitioner to support a person and a family, whatever that bad news may be. But it was amazing to use the work, I felt, of Bual, the Forum Theatre, because it gives them the, interge- the opportunity to be actors. As Matt referred to, but intervene, and you kind of had that joker person who moves around and gets others to join in. But it was it was such a learning experience. I felt to observe because you could actually see, you know, as uh, as we refer to, you know, the the learner teaches the teacher learns, and it was amazing how they could they were able to step up to the mark. Being pulled in like that, you know. Okay, let's see now. How would you do that, or and learn and share from each other? So, come back to your question. Data, it works. I can always say it works. It, t- it take quite. It took quite some time for me because there's a lot to it and it being new to me. But they just go hand in hand.
2: I found myself really fascinated by this link between the practicality and the theory. Because I guess acting at its heart always, I mean, it it is intrinsically a practical, it's a doing, isn't it? Uh, I don't know what it means to think about acting without acting uh, or to write about acting without doing. But there there is a very different relationship somehow between your theories and your practice or else it's different because of the practical ways that you yourself have lived those journeys. So how, Matt, do you see that relationship between hard theory, guiding principle, and practical action?
4: Well, um, thanks, Ian. It's a a very good question. And as you say, I, I struggle to understand the practice of drama without regarding it as always praxis you can't really understand it except through doing it and you can't really understand what you're doing except through understanding how it relates to the ideas behind it. At the simplest level and the way that's most directly translatable to somebody who has no understanding about the area and possibly even little interest in it, when we've had like 15 minutes to brief about 70 people for a disaster response training scenario, we can just give them one simple little tip and that is the concept of objectives, right? We've got to remember that Acting training techniques were drawn from observation of human behaviour. So, you know, you think of Irving Goffman's Dramaturgy of Everyday Life, which, you know, demonstrated that in social roles, people are playing roles as though they are dramatic characters. To understand what we're doing with them, it's applicable to understand the theories behind actor training. What What is an actor doing when they're playing a character? So, for instance, the idea of an objective, what do I want to happen? What does my character want to happen next? So if I'm talking to a group of people who are about to do an all day role play, I just say, well, what is the, what is the simplest objective that you can identify? Do you want to be allowed to go home? Do you want medication? Do you want to go to the hospital? Do you want to find your child? Do you want somebody to help you with your sick child? If you're the health professional, do you need to identify who needs treatment first? Do you need to set up a communication team before you can assess the patients? So you have a clear objective. And when you're acting as an actor, you you play that objective. The theory of actions in actor training at Stanislavski, Stanislavski is the actions are what I'm doing to other people to achieve that objective. So it's always a transitive verb. Am I advising you? Am I reassuring you? Am I soothing you? Am I warning you? Am I challenging you? Am I avoiding you? Am I ignoring you? And so on. So the same exercises you would use to teach actors to practice objectives and actions, I am ignoring you because I need to focus on this other patient, or I am challenging you because I really need that medication right now right? You use those exercises and then you you give people a sort of a basic preliminary skill base and using improvisation or even non-verbal versions. I mean, I can challenge you right now just by thinking the thought, I challenge you, or I can guide you or reassure you right now just by thinking the thought. So, once we start to think about what communication is at that level of interaction or relational moment, it, it becomes an activation of what we call sympathetic presence i mean what fascinated me when i was reading the theory of nursing was this concept of sympathetic presence as an alternative to empathy and it struck me when i read the sort of the sentence in the person-centered nursing framework by uh, tanya mccance and brenda mccormick that empathy was neither desirable nor possible within nursing if you come to me with a with a broken leg i can't feel your pain and nor do you want me to you know, you, you want me to be aware of how I feel and aware of how you feel, but not trying to feel the same thing and not claiming to feel the same thing. So, in sympathetic presence, we have this moment where I'm paying attention to how you're feeling. I'm paying attention to how I'm feeling and being aware of the difference. And that moment is the moment where you engage in. Acting, as an actor, you do exercises about being more present. I mean, you might want to call them mindfulness, about paying attention to what's happening right now. You do breathing exercises that help you to relax and help you to sort of liberate your voice. And then you practice things like how do I achieve my objective? What kind of actions should I play? And the thing that then I think takes it outside of the acting approach and more into the nursing in terms of this relational aesthetic and ethic of care is what's the other person's objective? Like, as an actor, if I'm playing the killer, I might, you know, not really be concerned what the other person wants. I mean, they might be trying to escape, but I've still got to get them. I probably shouldn't say killer, but, you know, that's, that's the role I was cast in usually with, yeah, <laughs> with and this and face. Um, and but if I, the lover, you know, if I want to, yeah. to, to seduce somebody, I might not be as concerned about whether or not they would rather just have a cup of tea. But when I'm working in healthcare, it is crucial for me to understand what the other person's objective is. So if we start to not only pay attention to what we want and how we achieve what we want to happen next, but also, what do they want? That they might be not be telling us. I mean, one of our basic exercises is how are you? I'm fine. Everybody says, how are you? And most people answer, I'm fine. Because but they're how British and it's the only <laughs> answer you're ever going to get.
2: <laughs> <laughs> can I, can I just come, back, come back to you in a minute? But I just want you to can tell,
4: you can, Sorry, I was just going to say, you can tell what the subtext is. You can tell what their objective is if you pay much attention.
2: Thank you. And, and Sue, I mean, I, I'm going to ask Matt in a minute, or at least I hope we come on to how working with you and with nurses has changed his understanding of his theoretical landscapes. But I want to ask whether working with Matt and his theoretical knowledge of theatre and understanding of human relationships either has changed how you think and practice or whether you see it change how other people think and practice as well as providing them with skill sets. Does it inform underlying beliefs as well as practice?
3: I think what it has what it has done is has highlighted the importance of taking care of you, of that self care. Uh, when we look at the whole area of being sympathetically present, being centered, being with the person as opposed to doing to the person, I feel for for as an individual as a practitioner, it's been a different way of thinking. Yes, we can say when we talk about empathy and imagine being in the, in the shoes with, of someone else and so forth, but can you really do that? Is it a case of recognising the uniqueness of that person and having the objectives, the intentions, the attentiveness, the applied drama, the acting techniques? It has got me thinking an awful lot more about that, where I probably wouldn't have had before.
2: Matt, how is seeing a side of the world that you might not have had exposure to had you not made those connections? how has that changed you or your understanding of theory or the way that you think and approach your what your skill sets offer?
4: well I would not have come across the term of personhood or person centeredness in the way that it's used in health practice before this to Think about these things in relation to those ideas has opened up a whole new uh, level of understanding about the relationship of drama to real life, and and I think this is what it has done for the nursing students that we've worked with, or the nurses, and many of whom are like late stage, um, you know some are retirees who are continuing in a voluntary capacity. For the nurses, they have heard about or learned about person centeredness but they're not quite sure what it is beyond there's a sort of framework with some values in it, and they might include competences and attributes and they might do processes such as sympathetic presence or shared decision-making and so on, all of which is, was completely sort of novel to me and a fairly complex set of understandings of what's taking place within the moment of care. On the other hand, when we turn those ideas into, so what does that mean in practice? If I am trying to do a shared decision-making process with a patient or a family member, what does that involve? And what we've been discovering through the work, and because it's all dialogical pedagogy, we're learning as much from the people we've been working with as they've been learning from us. We have discovered that shared decision-making involves identifying Things like what your objectives are, noticing when somebody's emotional state or an action might be a way to understand what an underlying effect. So, for instance, what we often say is, you know, breaking bad news, we might find a family member reacts in an aggressive way, and they might start sort of threatening us or interrupting us or or even insulting us. What does that tell us about their objective? You know, if, if they're angry at us, what is it that they're not getting that they want? How can we use that as a way to understand what the basis of a shared decision-making process would be? They're not being heard. I mean, very often what the the source of difficulty in communication is people feel like, like they're not being heard, let alone understood, that you're not listening to them and you're not taking on board what matters to them. So... To use techniques that I've drawn you know, to, in order to play characters on stage or or even to to bring to life people's real life experiences through applied theater or, or forum theater or community based theater into a situation of right so here and now in this real moment when you're trying to look after me or I'm trying to look after you, how can we turn these things into, understandable, tangible realities with tangible outcomes. And One of the things that we've been doing with the courses, we've been doing questionnaire-based evaluations using these tools, including the Connor-Davidson Resilience Index and the Person-Centered Practice Index, where they do questionnaires at the beginning and questionnaires at the end. In all cases, there's been significant increase in the scores on each. Uh, And in terms of person-centered practice index scores, which have been sort of like 10 to 25% improvement over the course of a 35-hour module, one thing they particularly tend to sort of have significant improvements is is an understanding of what person-centeredness is, of what sympathetic presence is. Because often there's confusion between person-centeredness and patient-centeredness. Patient-centeredness is being focused on the patient, but not just as a medical case study, but as a person who has multiple needs. So, patient-centeredness is a little bit more holistic than the classical medical model of the patient is a disease that I need to treat as against the patient as a human. But person-centeredness is that patient in all of their context, all of their values, all of their experiences, but also the recognition that I, as a health practitioner, am also a person. And this is how I think we've been able to help people deal with burnout and to sort of bolster their resilience. And and it's not just a matter of self-care. It's a matter of the group being able to provide a support network that can provide mutually supportive understanding of and input and wisdom on how to care for each other as well as oneself, where we go, I am a person. I need to recognize when I'm feeling tired or I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling scared and it's not the same as what the patient's feeling, the pain that I feel, which is not the same as theirs. So how do we understand their pain, understand our pain and our other states, emotional and physical states, and then turn them into objectives that we can clarify, which sounds yeah. kind of complex, but it's as simple as me paying attention to you right now, DJ, wanting yeah. me to start talking.
1: <laughs> well if I if I pick up yeah it's just because I, I wanted to pick up on something you say and thanks you for giving us such a such a clear overview of you know the practicalities of it and you know, tangible outcomes. But I wanted to ask Sue and this you know ties into a question that we've received from um somebody in the in the audience that from your practice as a nurse like how many sessions does it take for people to you know become familiar with these concepts and the question comes from a, from an audience member you know who who says that they are pitching narrative medicine to hospital administration uh, narrative medicine an approach that we've talked about in the conversation a few times mm-hmm. and then you know the answer they get is like you get one to 3 hours in in your experience Sue, like how long does it, an intervention like this take for it to become practically valuable, to have these kind of tangible outcomes that Matt describes,
3: we we would have a thirty-five hour course, and that course would be held over a six-week period. And of course, that would we've done it as an intensive course over two weeks, and so forth. You'd probably agree with me, Matt, but we find at the at the probably midway through the six weeks. The the penny drops, you know, it's like a light bulb moment for the participants where they kind of realise where where actor training applied drama comes with clinical practice or communication training, I should say. At the end of that six-week period, 35-hour course, the difference from day one, where we have a group of participants who are really apprehensive, and it is known, the literature, the research supports it, that nurses do not like role play and do not, and they're vulnerable, uh, they're in this position, and they think, why had I even decided to do this? What is this about? It's, It's amazing to watch that growth. And then when it comes to maybe midway, third week of the course, that's when you can see, you see a big change. Come to the end of that, the evaluations, you can see it besides the evaluations of what the participants have said at the end. You see it, you actually see that change. What we do then is we would ask like a reflective discussion the following week Well. This is what we did, this is what we covered. How, how was your week? How did you put that into practice? How are you do, to able to apply that new learning? And it is, it actually, it happens, it shows. So I suppose every individual is different, but what I am trying to say is that 35 hour course, such a difference from one end to the other.
4: On the other hand, as well, we understand that people are sometimes short of time, especially mm-hmm. at the minute where people are so short staffed as well as pressed for time. So we have done sessions as short as one hour, uh, up to three hour taster workshops. We have done six hour, sort of one day kind of events and we have a couple of courses that are planned at being 12 hours for people who've only got two days to spare particularly about um, resilience and post-traumatic growth and burnout and burnout, how to manage it and how to avoid it, how to build resilient teams because one of the issues with resilience and self-care and there's a lot of kickback against it happening in the global nursing community at the minute we find um, is this idea that if you're not coping, we'll send you a video on how to do a mindfulness exercise and that's you, you'll be sorted. And one of the things that I drew from the person-centered nursing framework and those other theories of person-centeredness and care was the necessity of a person centered culture of a system that that puts people first including the the colleagues and the employees i recently did a project with some secondary school teachers and over the course of 6 hours in the one day we went from similar level of apprehension and, a, and maybe a couple of dramas teachers who thought they had an idea of what we were going to do, to the end of the day, actually resolving significant problems within the teams in terms of communication between managing uh, management and staff that that have been coming up. Similarly, in terms of uh, working with nurses, for people who are learning these techniques as something to use in their ongoing professional practice for the rest of their careers, halfway through or by the end, the penny drops, even if it's just on the value of some of the breathing exercises to help them relax. By the first day, they're already having a go at dealing with scenarios drawn from their own professional experience and learning from each other's attempts to resolve those conflicts or those challenging situations in a way that's more satisfactory. So, within one day, you can make a significant difference. But like everything else, the more you do it, the better it is. So, after that 35-hour graduate certificate course, we also have two subsequent courses for people who want to become trainers. One about uh, advanced issues in health communication led by Sue, which is, you know, what's the thinking behind the nursing aspects of the approach to teaching? And one on teaching and assessing, perhaps, which is where you, you have the, the the having to come across and read bits of stuff to do with Free Array and, and Hethcote and so on. You don't have to do all that stuff in the in the shorter courses, but if you want to teach it, you got to know where it's coming from. Yeah, yeah. And it's a lifelong learning process after that.
2: I, I'd love to keep talking about resilience because it's a word I almost never use. One of the reasons that you have highlighted, which is that we spend time trying to teach people to be resilient in the face of a system that is broken, and unmanageable. Problem is often the system, not lack of resilience. But I was reflecting that one of the things that we talk a lot about in this series is, This interesting notion of how arts and the humanities works alongside STEM subjects, that the two fields of knowledge are complementary and both bring something of value to learning and lived experience. We often reflect that, you know, we we do not want to see arts and humanities knowledge become something that is only valuable if it's applied. But yet we also want to demonstrate how arts and humanities knowledge Um, has huge value in its ability to be applied alongside STEM. And you find yourself wondering why we don't have shared teaching between drama students and nursing students, or drama students and medical students, but the catch of course is that some research suggests that arts practitioners, humanities scholars, dislike feeling that their knowledge is used to just be instrumentalized to make nicer doctors. Do you think that these sorts of things should be happening earlier in our universities, that we should be having more constructive links between different schools of thinking for mutual learning?
4: Well, part of my work over the last sort of 20 years has included sort of teaching modules on performance and health and doing research and practice in arts and health in general. So, I'm aware of one, there's the broad arts and health, arts for well-being framework, you know, um, excellent book by Mike White, for instance, Arts for Social Health or Community Tonic. Uh, And there's, there's quite a body of work on how participation in the arts can be supportive of well-being, everything from singing a community choir that can improve your respiratory breathing to the general well-being of having a social and creative lifelong learning practice. And I'm also aware that there are interventions in medical training and nursing training, often from an early sort of stage, like in first year, where people will do artistic processes in some of the sort of more progressive kind of courses, where in the name of generally improving empathy or an understanding of, of cultural values, um, doctors might sort of engage in uh, seeing some play or watching some art or even engaging in and creating and sometimes even forum theater. I value all of that work for the sheer fact that any broadening of your mind in any direction is going to make you more of a, uh, a whole person. I mean, informally, a lot of medical students I knew used to perform in their medical faculty reviews because they 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 had a, an ambition to do something slightly more than than the calling. But no, I'm not uh, totally sure a medical student review focused on
2: communications. <laughs>
4: <laughs> not necessarily. No, no. Uh, well, it depends on what you mean by communication. On the other hand, Everybody has to do role play. I mean, if you're an international nurse, you have to do an OSCE. If you're an international doctor, you have to pass a PLAB. If you're a, if you want to become a doctor or a nurse, you have to pass a role play examination. So I think there is a value in something that provides people with tangible, usable skills, especially these days when there is like a shortage of resources and everybody's feeling under the cosh all the time, for time, for staff, for availability. So something that is maybe a bit more focused on how can we use this to solve actual problems in our everyday life to me is a bit more, a bit more amenable and constructive to health professionals. So a doctor will say, sure, sure, sure. I'll go to see an opera if I feel, if I feel like a time. We all like listening to music and I like going to the art gallery. And yeah, you know, I feel like I'm an empathetic, a nice person, but we're talking about the rigorous application of fairly complex concepts from theatre practice and theatre research into the everyday and the abstract conceptual framework of care and nursing as a profession. So how can I use this stuff from drama to be a more effective doctor or nurse or, or professional to communicate more effectively with the people around me in a way that both supports me and supports my team as whole beings as well as at the same time, you know, results in improved clinical outcomes. I understand the practical difficulties people are facing, you know, and so I understand that that's where a lot of the, the controversial aspects of the resilience discourse come from. We want people back on their feet, back at work so they can continue to provide the services. And, you know, something that seems to be efficient, but doing that straight away is what we're, we're looking for. However, That is part of the problem that is causing the burnout in the first place. This systemic mechanized paradigm of care is a job that you perform and you need to have, you know, functioning units to deliver it is one of the reasons why people are being ground down. And this is where the aspect of the arts that is not just practically relevant and helpful in terms of how do I deal with this difficult situation, but also reminds us of what it is to be human and the essential elements of humanity that we all need to survive. So the beauty of the moment where someone is holding their hands uh, with, with somebody as they're passing on from life, the sensitivity of paying attention to and caring and feeling the pain of another person who might not be able to express it in words. Those are visceral experiences. Those are also clinical experiences. Those are also aesthetic experiences. They're a point where life is art in the purest sense of both words and anything that helps us to understand what life is or what art is can be useful in that. So we're trying to be pragmatic, but at the same time, we're not going to ignore the fact That we're operating within what Professor James Thompson calls an aesthetic of care which is when a nurse is looking after a patient or a human being is looking after another human being that there is an aesthetic element as well as a relationship going on and that you cannot effectively diagnose the condition and apply the right medication without also engaging in an aesthetic where you feel what their feeling, not in the sense of, I have empathy, oh, I feel your pain, but you feel that they are in pain. And then you can use the fact that you're not in the same kind of a pain to reach each other across, you know, not only the gulf of disciplines, but the gulf of of being separate human beings. And the thing is we're we're never actually separate. And this this is the thing where also I would say it diverges from resilience or even in disciplinary silos. A lot of what we're talking about is looking at what we already do We start by looking at a situation where the nurses feel like their communication is successful, and then we're identifying what it is that they have done. You know, you listened. That's an action. I listened to you. Your objective was to understand them. You then persuaded them, and they impacted you, or they they persuaded you. So we're looking at what you're already doing, and this is the same in terms of resilience. What do you already do to get through the day? I'm 99% of the time. Medical and nursing professionals are amongst the most skillful communicators in the world, not just the clinical at an aesthetic level. I mean, when there have been times when I've been sitting with a doctor, especially when, when one of my children is involved, where you're moved to tears by the capacity of someone to listen and understand and to move in the way that reassures you and to touch in the way that's therapeutic. And they don't even realize what it is that they're doing. So it's a matter of drawing an awareness of the aesthetic of care that is happening in every single moment of every single day of every single life already and consciously being able to draw on that when you're finding yourself in a more challenging situation.
1: Yeah, I think, Matt, what you were saying ties in very nicely with the comment that we've had in the in the Q and there's two more questions that would be really nice to get to in, in as we are enter the last 10 minutes of our conversation. I'll I'll turn the the comment I think into a question to you Sue. So we have somebody saying that we have to collaborate, work together, you know, client and physicians, you know, given that we're all human and that we have to acknowledge that. And I think that touches to the kind of idealism that Matt you were also talking about. Sue, do you ever get any pushback? You know, are there people who don't buy into how, you know, the arts coming into the space of of nursing and and health?
3: I think things are getting better. In my experience, I feel it's definitely a wider recognition now that arts, humanity, healthcare, we are all together. I read an article recently in one of the nursing journals, um, and it was relating to... um, a professor, Christy Watson, and were, uh, she made kind of, it. was relating to the fact that 80% of the schools, the medical schools in the USA, have an arts module and how it has shown that it creates better um, clinicians, so to speak, and the push for and the recognition that that should be happening across the universities now, you know, for the, the next generations, doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals. And yes, I think when it comes to the, I suppose, the challenges of connecting the nursing with the arts, with applied drama and so forth, it does take a bit of getting used to, there's no doubt. And even from my own colleagues and some of my colleagues in clinical practice, it's one, you know, explaining to them and it's kind of getting their head around, how, how does that work? It's getting across, nursing healthcare isn't just scientific, it's not anatomy, it's not just physiology, alongside that is the arts and humanities, they go hand in hand. But yeah, it it, it takes a bit of work, of course.
4: There have been been some participants who've gotten a bit uh, impatient with the arty-farty faffing about (laughs) <laughs> but one thing I would say, and then it's wonderful to be able to work with people on that level because we're, we're trying to sort of uh, be of value to people. So, you know, it's not like, you know, well, my way or the highway if you don't like the arty-farty faffing about, get out. We adapt and we sort of we, we work with, well, what is it that you want from this experience? And in every single case, even the most resistant person that we have worked with for more than a couple of hours has ended up finding some significant value in it. I mean, and the thing is, because we do a debrief at the beginning and end of every session, and we ask things like, you know, has anybody found any of the stuff we've been doing useful? in your professional life, and you're, you're always startled by the way people have found it valuable. I mean, we had one nurse on a Sunday morning saying, oh, sorry, I'm a bit tired. I was up all night last night. I had a call out. There's a community volunteer to a, a cardiac arrest in a caravan park, and I found the breathing exercise really useful in terms of helping myself to calm down and my colleague to calm down. I was thinking of my actions and objectives when I was on the phone to the paramedics, trying to find out why the ambulance hadn't arrived in four hours, and then after we sadly lost the patient, I was able to draw on those same breathing exercises and drama exercise to comfort and console or, or, or think consciously that the role my job was to comfort and console the colleague. And then we're going, wow, uh, <laughs> are you sure you want to do the rest of the day's training? And go, no, no, I'm up for it. And then at the end of the day saying that that's the next six hours and really help them to process all of the difficult experiences that came along with that, you know, what must be called a trauma. And it reminds me of how Bessel van der Koek in the, in the very well known book, The Body Keeps the Score. He talks about things that have been useful for turning trauma into growth. Uh, as against, you know, as a medical uh, diagnosis that needs to be treated through medication that can um, mask the symptoms. I mean, I think this is the area that we're having, are facing the biggest, biggest challenge, particularly in the area of sort of mental health and well-being, the genes mm-hmm. and meds version of psychiatry versus the person-centered version of psychiatry. Not that mm-hmm. I want to create them as oppositions, mm-hmm. The idea, the Bessel van der Kolk says through theatre, participation in theatre, we can engage in this symbolic transformation through communal action. People doing things together can help us to transform difficult experiences symbolically, and I think that's where we have value.
3: I think, um, so, no time, data still staying on that question, was we had taster workshops, two-hour taster workshops, to allow folk to dip their toe in. Get a feel for you know what is this, um, what it's about, and I have to say that worked very well for them.
2: And thank you for all of these. There's just one question that I really want to get back to, which because we're coming very close to the end, and I, I may slightly mangle uh, the question. I apologise to the questioner, so, but um, I think that he's specifically also asking around issues of presuppositions and how do we make sure that. Or how do you make sure that work you do is always culturally sensitive, that doesn't come from specific presuppositions of either what good care is like or how individual communities, practitioners behave? And that you can cross over the boundaries that are sometimes incredibly hard to understand people's lives who are very different to our own from different communities or, different, uh, or from minority communities. Or who don't speak English, or who have a very different understanding of the world or medicine, that may change their interaction with care. So, how do you work to overcome any unwitting biases that may arise from our natural kind of world around us of being this Western world of thinking and theatre and, and so forth?
4: Yes, thanks, Ian. Um, and I also noticed on the question that was that was also framed in relation to the theoretical concepts of aesthetics and so on. It's a question I don't think anyone can ever really have the arrogance to claim to solve. You know, oh, well, I'm perfectly fine adapting into any cultural context with any with anybody from a different background, a different set of frameworks and values. You know, the answer is to do this because that's engaging in exactly the kind of determinism that the question's trying to argue against. However, you know, what we do begins with breath. Uh, it begins with non-verbal communication, and we have engaged in workshops. So far, we've done a number of sort of three-hour workshops with nurses from 47 different countries, and over the next three years, we're going to be working with Nursing Now, which is a, used to be called the Florence Nightingale Challenge, based in Coventry, and they have um, hundreds of thousands of members at, uh, I think it's 203 different countries. And we are going to be over the next three years delivering training for nurses from lots of different countries around the world. We have so far 75 people have, have expressed an interest in doing 35-hour course from 16 different countries. So because what we start with is at the level of breath and stillness and then at the level of non-verbal communication and also when we do start to work with verbal communication We are basing things around the language and the experiences of the participants. So we say, when have you felt like communication has gone well? And then they not only explain it to us, but then they start to use some of the acting techniques we teach them to present that. And then with a group of people from the same cultural context, who have had the same kind of experiences. Providing the suggestions and then being encouraged by us to step in as spec actors, they are trying out different approaches that are that they have learned from that are appropriate from their local knowledge. This is what I'm trying to get across when I'm saying it. it's not about teaching somebody some, how to do something new. It's about how to think in a new way about what you're already doing. So if we reflect on what it is that we're doing when something is successful. And then can consciously apply to that in a situation that's more difficult. So if I was able to communicate with this family member well yesterday, what was it I was doing in terms of what did they want, what did I want, what kind of feeling did we get at a nonverbal level, what did their breath tell us about how they were feeling physically and emotionally, and then we can apply that to the challenging breaking of bad news tomorrow then that will be bringing your and their cultural context with them. So we're not saying at any stage to anybody, this is how you do it. We're saying here is a set of techniques and approaches and exercise and fun, fun and simple games that are the same games children play when they're growing up, when they're playing doctors and nurses as three-year-old, five-year-old children, right? Fun games to explore what it is that you do in your real life, in your world, in your context and how to draw the bits out of that can, that can help you look after yourself and each other.
1: Thank you, Matt. That's uh, wonderful. We're, we're kind of at the end, but maybe, Sue, very, very briefly, Matt's already kind of indicated some of the things that are going to happen in the future. I mean, what are kind of some of, your, very briefly, maybe your hopes that you you hope to achieve with with your work in, in the future?
3: I'm extremely inspired by the health action training methodology of the use of applied drama and acting techniques and bringing the arts into that i hope for the future that we continue doing what we do that we come to the stage and this is on a global across internationally that we are working with others collaborating with others from all different settings and disciplines i see this as a toolbox as matt had referred to there to me The techniques, the the new learning, the new activities, they're all a toolbox and it's to aid you as a healthcare professional or as that person to be able to look after yourself, but also to be able to deliver that quality, person-centered care, excellent communication skills and really putting the patient, the family, their loved ones at the heart of what we do.
1: Well, thank you so much. I mean, it's been truly inspiring, as I'm sure Ian will agree. And also, thank you for everyone who's joining us
4: today.
0: Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you. thank you very much.
0: That was the first episode of season three. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode with Professor Angela Woods from Durham University. Dita and Ian will talk to Angela about how the field of medical humanities has grown and changed over the last 10 years, the challenges of interdisciplinary collaboration, and her work as co-director of Hearing the Voice, an ambitious interdisciplinary research project on the experience of hearing voices. To stay up to date with more news about the podcast and our live events, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at ConvoArtsHealth. This episode of Conversations About Arts, Humanities and Health was produced by me, David Brown. Until next time.